Okay, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be talking about the story of Abraham. Now, the story of Abraham is one of the most important stories in the Bible. Uh, And yet, like so many of the important stories in the Bible, it's one that is often read in a moralistic way. Um, It's read in a way often by Christians that, or people that are trying to understand the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, they tend to read these stories as examples for us either to be like Abraham or not be like Abraham. And one of the points I've been trying to make in our series, this is now our, our third week in this series, is that the hero of the Bible is God. The one who makes and keeps his promises is God. The, the central theme of the Bible is there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises that the seed of the woman, of Eve, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible is the story about how God perseveres to keep that promise in spite of all kinds of obstacles. And that's what this story of Abraham is about. Now, this is a story that has been profoundly misunderstood by people. Um, Kierkegaard, as great as he was, profoundly misses the point of this story. Uh, in describing this uh, story of, for instance, the binding of Isaac, which we'll get to at the very end of this tonight, thinking that that's a story about how we need to be like Abraham and just take a blind leap in the dark, and that that's the essence of faith. And there are a lot of people in our culture in the church, outside the church, sort of checking out Christianity, people that think they understand Christianity and don't want to have anything to do with it, um, often misunderstand one of the most basic things, which is, what is faith? Is faith closing your eyes and just taking a blind leap? A lot of people think that that's what it is, and there's a lot of Christians who've told them that's what it is or have given them that impression. But I think the story of Abraham shows us that faith is not a blind leap in the dark. And you can't understand chapter 22 and the story of the binding of Isaac unless you understand the context with the story of Abraham, where it starts and how it finally culminates in that story. So we're going to kind of briefly sort of touch down on some of the key places where we see this story of Abraham. And the central theme of what we're going to talk about tonight is about how God pursues his people to do battle with their unbelief. Now, you may not think that unbelief is a big problem of yours, but what I want to contend is that unbelief is the central problem for all those who would try to live in relationship with God and follow the Christian life. Unbelief is the issue that plagues uh, us in every turn. We, We often call it other things, It often masquerades as other things, and I'm going to talk about that as we go through this passage tonight. But unbelief, trusting God, is a huge issue. But the Bible doesn't just say, trust. The Bible actually never gives us just bare commands and just says, do this, just do this. Don't ask why, don't ask questions, just do it. No, the the Bible always gives us a context in which it invites us to trust God, a context that is the story that we're looking at each week and the aspect of the story that we need to see tonight if we would rightly understand how this story can help us. We don't want these stories of the Old Testament just to be historical curiosities. Oh, that's interesting that that happened. 
because what Jesus says is that every part of the Bible talks about him. And so let's see how that works itself out in this passage. If you got a Bible, start at Genesis chapter 12. If you have the little outline, well, look at it. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, now, this guy, Abram, starts out with the name Abram. Eventually, he gets a new name, Abraham. So, lest you be confused, it's not two different people. It's the same person whose name changes as we go through the story. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now the story goes through some various things, um, but the next important thing for us to understand the Lord's pursuit of Abram is in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Genesis chapter 15. It says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside, means God took Abraham outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Look at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared. And passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now the story goes on. The next chapter, Abram gets this idea from his wife, Sarai, whose name gets changed to Sarah. Gets this idea that God needs some help to bring about this promise to bring about a son from Abraham. You see, God has promised Go into this land, and then God has promised that I will give you a son, and through this son and through your heirs, uh, I will make a great 
a great family that will, that will lead to the blessing of all the nations on the earth. And Abram believes this promise. And then in chapter 15, you find that faith and struggling doubt are not incompatible. He's still struggling and asking God, how can this be? How can it be that this promise is going to happen because I still don't have a kid? And God says, it's going to happen. There's going to be a son from your own body. So in chapter 16, Sarah says, well, I think I might know what God has in mind. How about we do this? In that day and age, it was socially acceptable. If you were a woman who could not have children, then you could offer up your servant girl to your husband. He could impregnate her, and the child would be legally your heir. So that's what they do in chapter 16. They try to help God bring about the fulfillment of his promise. Thirteen years later, chapter 17 God comes again and reiterates his promise to Abram, saying, I will give you a son. But now he adds this detail. I will give you a son by your wife, Sarah. And then God gives circumcision as a sign of this promise. We'll talk about the significance of that. Finally, Isaac is born to Sarah and Abraham. And all seems to be going well. God has finally kept his promise. The future looks bright and rosy. And then we get to chapter 22. And the Lord asks something that seems absolutely inconceivable. So look at chapter 22 if you're following along in your Bible. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering excuse me, and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Let's pray together, and then we will seek to unpack what this story is about. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who is not powerless in the face of unbelief. We thank you that you are a pursuing God. And we thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. We pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves and bless your wisdom tonight. In particular, the wisdom of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, obviously, there's lots of stuff in these stories. I mean, I've talked to you about, what, five or six chapters, and I can't talk about everything that's in all these chapters. There's all kinds of other interesting things, but we're doing a whirlwind tour of where's Jesus in the Old Testament. And so, let me just say a couple things. First, uh, the story is basically a journey. It's a journey both physically, but also, in a sense, metaphorically, because the same kind of issues keep coming up again and again and again. And what you find is there's real progression even in Abraham's faith. I think this is very helpful, again, because I think a lot of people in our day and age misunderstand faith. A lot of people think of faith as sort of just this blind leap in the dark. And closely related to that is this idea that a lot of people have that faith is sort of a spiritual temperament that some people have. Some people just have this ability to close their eyes and take a leap in the dark. But other people are more practical, and so faith is just not part of their makeup. That is not at all what the Bible means by faith. Faith is not a natural temperament that some people have, and some people just don't have it. Look at how this story begins. It begins as all stories of faith begin according to the Bible. God initiates. God initiates. Notice this. Abraham is not searching for God. He's not calling out to God. He's not crying out to God. He is a descendant of one of Moses' sons, Shem, who when we looked last week, we understand that of the three sons of Moses, uh, God had said that it's through the line of Shem that the seed line of the Messiah will be carried forward. So Abraham is in that seed line, but there's nothing to to make us think that he's a worshiper of God, Yahweh. Whenever the Bible uses all four capital letters, L-O-R-D, it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, not just a general name of God, some vague God. And there's nothing here to make us think that Abram had a relationship with this God. The Lord says to him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And what you need to understand as this story develops, I didn't read these sections, but maybe some of you are familiar with this story. Later in that chapter, chapter 12, Abram, to save his neck, tells some people that his wife is his sister because he's afraid that if they think that she's his wife, they'll kill him so they can take her. 
later that does the same thing again in chapter 20. So what you need to understand is Abram is not the greatest guy in the world. And God sort of looks out over the whole world and says, he, he's the guy I can use to build my kingdom. No, Abraham is a guy who's full of fear. Yes, he goes when the Lord asks him to go. But right away, as soon as he gets to the land, he gives up his wife. He's not a, he's not a great guy. So the Lord initiates, and the Lord initiates a relationship and calls a guy who doesn't deserve it. And that's the way every story begins. Every relationship with God begins that way. Now, we don't always know it and think of it that way, but I want you to understand it's important for you to look back and think, what has God been doing in my life? I I love the fact that in this story, we don't just have one chapter about Abraham. We get to see chapter after chapter uh, as, as his faith develops, and you see his story is not a straight line where he trust God enough to go, and then later he trusts God more, and then more, and then more, and then more. And finally, he's able to be this heroic guy with this unbelievable amount of faith that he can even offer up his own son as a sacrifice. That's not the picture of Abraham we have in the Bible. Abraham's story is up and down and up and down and up and down, much like my story, much like your story. And that's important for you to understand So, you know, I I mentioned Luther's famous quote, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. And Abraham doesn't know his guide very well at this point. That's not really where Abraham is at when this story begins. He goes based on God's call and God's promise. And understand, it is a big deal. The, The text says specifically he's called to leave his country, his people, and his father's household. So he's basically called to leave his past behind. Everything that gave him significance and security, he does leave behind. But he doesn't leave it behind sort of perfectly or in a, at, at a level at which we would say, God would say, yeah. It doesn't say Abraham left, went to this country, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Later, He believes God, and it's credited him as righteousness. But right now, he goes. He goes. And it is worth thinking about, you know, what following God might mean that you need to leave behind. Because faith stories begin that way. But like I said, it's just the beginning. One of the things I think we see through this story of Abraham as it develops is the Bible It teaches us in other places, but it teaches it in a particularly profound way here that faith is a muscle that grows by being exercised. A lot of times I talk to students who will say, you know, I just wish I had more faith. And they're really just sort of hoping that it will kind of zap them. (laughs) But faith, if you basically only call upon God when you think you can't do it yourself, faith isn't really growing. It's probably atrophying. I remember when I ruptured my Achilles one time. Anybody ruptured their Achilles? You don't want to do that. It's not so much the Achilles. The Achilles rupture doesn't hurt at all. It's just weird. It feels all numb. It feels like you're in a hole because your heel drops down, right, because it's not held up by that tendon. Um, but it doesn't hurt at all. But you know what hurts 
after a couple months of having that cast, and then the cast comes off, and then you have to stretch your plantar fascia. Oh my gosh, excruciating. Excruciating. Atrophying muscles and tendons are no joke. I think of it this way. You know, I, I don't know where you guys grew up. I grew up in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, and I grew, uh, grew up in this, uh, on top of this hill that was the highest hill in Baltimore County. And I don't, I don't know, if, you know if you guys like this, but it was a very kind of windy road to get to the top of this hill. And I'm telling you, I knew that hill so well, going up and down, up and down, up and down for years, that I really feel like I could turn off my lights and find my way. As a matter of fact, I had to. One time I was, we had a bad snowstorm, and my alternator wasn't working very well. So I had a choice. I could really only run either my defrost, my windshield wipers, or my lights. I couldn't do them all, and it was night, and I had to drive up that hill, and so I turned off the lights because I, I had to have the windshield wipers because it was snowing like a foot, so you had to wipe the snow off, and you could find, I could find my way. I knew it like the back of my hand. Why? Because I'd been that way a million times, and I think that faith is like that. If, if you go to Jesus, even when you think you don't really need him, but you do it as spiritual exercise, you'll know the way when the lights are dim, <laughs> And when things are dark, woe are you if you're a Christian and you don't get used to running to Jesus when you can see him well. Because there will be times when your vision will be more cloudy, when the lights will not be so clear. And that's the last time you want to find that your muscles have atrophied and you don't know the way home. Right? So Abraham goes, but his story certainly is not a straight line. But God continues to pursue Abraham, not just for Abraham, but to bring about the Messiah. Well, what's the next stop on the journey? We jump ahead to Genesis chapter 15. There is this really fascinating, I wish I had time to tell you this, I'll just give you this one little hint. You should go back and read chapter 13. There's a point at which Lot, who went into the land with Abraham, Lot is his nephew, and there's a point at which they have to separate. And it's fascinating because all their enemies are still in possession of the land that God has promised to Abraham. And Abraham basically talks with Lot, okay, where, where do you want? You go that way, I'll go this way. You go that way, I'll go this way. Basically, Abraham says to Lot, like, the land is ours to divide. It's a fascinating thing because the land really isn't theirs. So it's a beautiful picture of part of what faith is. Faith takes possession by anticipation. Faith is when the promises of God, the future promises of God, break in to the present and define reality. So you could put it this way. Faith is seeing more, not seeing less. Faith is not closing your eyes. Faith is seeing that what God has promised is just as much, really, even more so relevant than what you can see and what you can imagine. Faith is not seeing less, it's seeing more. It's taking into account God's promise as the ultimate factor that needs to be weighed when you consider even the current situation that you're in. But then the next stop on the journey, Genesis 15. First, God reiterates his promise, 
But Abraham is still struggling to believe. I love this. In 15, you know, um, God comes to him in chapter 15 and says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your very great uh, reward. And Abram says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? I love the irony of that. Sovereign Lord, who's control of everything, what can you do? (laughs) You know how often unbelief just makes no sense? It is interesting how many people think that faith makes no sense. But I would say, in light of who God is, unbelief really doesn't make any sense. Particularly if you're a Christian and you say you know Jesus. You know, how often our, Lord, our, our lives are basically an expression of this. Sovereign Lord, what could you possibly do? <laughs> how could you possibly help? Sovereign Lord, how could you help? And what does God say? Does he say, well, you, you know, untrusting, cynical, you know, so-and-so, I'll show you. You know, stand back and watch me work. No. What does he do? He reiterates his promise. He reiterates his promise. He says flat out, this man, again, Eliezer is his servant. And again, there was this legal um, ability for your servant, if you died without children, to become your heir. But Abram says, that doesn't seem like what you promised. How can, how can I have this great uh, family that you've promised if I don't have a child? And God says to him, look, look at the sky. Let me show you something. Look at the sky. Count the stars. Look at the sand. Count the, count the grains of sand. So shall your offspring be. Now you might say, that's sort of a strange thing to do. Abraham says, I'm struggling to believe this promise. And God says, I'm promising more than you can even imagine. <laughs> Like he doesn't back down and say, well, I know, it's kind of hard to believe, Abraham. No, he says, no, I'm going to do it. And you're not, you can't even believe how many of your offspring be. You can't even count. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what I have in store for you, right? And then he does this very interesting thing, very interesting thing. He tells Abraham to go get some animals. <laughs> Abraham says, how can I know? And, and God says, go get some animals. Now, we read this second half of chapter 15, and we look at it, and we go, okay, this is weird. What's going on here? But notice, Abraham knows what to do with the animals. He knows what to do. Why is that? Because this is how you made an agreement in his day. If you wanted to make a serious agreement with someone, this is what you did. You took some animals, you cut them in half, you spread the pieces apart, And then you and the person you were making an agreement with would clasp hands and walk hand in hand through the pieces of the animals. And when you did that, what you were saying was, if either of us breaks our end of the deal, may we be torn apart like these animals. Right? It's like an uber serious version of cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? This is serious. If I don't keep this bargain, may it be done to me like it's been done to these animals. So Abram knows what's coming. Okay, now it's time for God and I to make this agreement. How can I know? Well, I can know because God's going to enter into an agreement with me. And I'm going to do my part and he's going to do my part. But you know what? If your basis for believing and knowing that God will keep his promises is because you do your part and he does his part, you can never know anything. Because if you think that faith is this kind of equation, me, my faith, plus God equals his promise coming true, 
His promise coming true is a constant variable. Why? Because your faith is a variable. If you've got a variable on this side, I think this is still true in math, right? There's a variable on this side, right? If your faith is fluctuating, so is the result. But that's not what God does. God takes this thing that Abraham understands and says, I'm going to show you something that you, you really will find difficult to believe. And so what does he do? He puts Abram into a deep sleep, and God walks through the pieces of the animals by himself. The way the Lord makes this promise that Abram would know that the Lord will keep his promise is the Lord said, I will take it upon myself, by myself, to walk through these pieces. Guys, do you understand that what the gospel is teaching us here What the Bible is teaching us here is that relationship with God is not based on you doing your part and God doing his part. It's based upon God saying, I will do my part. The difference is this. If, um, you know, let's say uh, I say to Jason, Jason, come over to my house tomorrow. I've still got a bunch of leaves that I haven't raked up. If you rake up those leaves, I'll give you a million dollars. Now, that may seem like grace to all of you because... It doesn't seem like that much work. You've been to my house. You know my yard's not very big. How many leaves can there be? That seems like this infinite overpayment, okay? But here's the thing. If he doesn't come over and do the work, he doesn't get paid. Now, if I say to Wes, Wes, I'm going to give you a million dollars. It's a completely different kind of agreement. Because for Jason to get paid, he has to be faithful, and so do I. But for Wes to get paid, I just need to keep my promise. And what Paul says in the book of Galatians is that the gospel, the good news, the heart of Christianity is a promise agreement, not a law agreement. It's not you do your part, God does his part. It's God does his part. And here's what's even more amazing. Who doesn't keep their end of the bargain? Abraham. And who gets torn apart at the cross? God himself. Do you understand that? I mean, sometimes we complain that God is not fair. But I don't know of very many people that complain about this kind of agreement. God says, look, I will undertake upon myself all of the responsibility for this relationship. And then we betray him, fight against him. And he says, okay, then I'm going to die in your place. That's what the gospel is about. Amazing. Amazing. Then chapter 16 happens. In spite of this, chapter 16 happens. In spite of this unbelievable picture that God gives Abram here. Chapter 16, Abram takes matters into his own hands, so to speak. And decides that he will give God a little help. You know what that feels like? You ever done that? Feel like God just needs a little help. Sometimes we do it by telling God what he needs to do. How often do we pray and we really are basically telling God what he needs to do and asking that he'll bless our plans? Or sometimes we say, well, I know God wouldn't want me to, you know, miss out on this. So I know his word said I should do this, but, you know, I, I, I can do this. It's okay. Like we, we all the time think we need to help God keep his promises. And that's Abraham does here. And the plan seems to work. He has a son through Hagar. 
And all seems well for 13 years. For 13 years. And, and I would say, often unbelief masquerades as faith until difficulties come. But here's, here's you know, what you find is often the most difficult times to believe God are when you can't figure out how he's going to keep his promise. And that's, that's what chapter 16 is about. Abram believes that God's going to keep this promise, but he just feels like he needs to be the one to bring it about through his own effort. And then what happens? Is all hope lost? What's God going to do with this massive betrayal, this unbelief? And then chapter 17. Again, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you fruitful. And I'm going to bring about this heir through your body and through your wife, Sarah. God adds promise upon promise. Doesn't that seem like so crazy? In light of unbelief, Abram doesn't get judgment. He gets more promises. And then he gets the sign of circumcision. What is the sign of circumcision? Circumcision actually was practiced by other peoples. It's not invented here in Genesis 17. And it's used as a cleansing ritual. I told you before, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word seed is the word for sperm. And so, you remember, we're talking about the seed line of the Messiah, right? And what this is the sign that God will remain true to his promise is a cleansing ritual applied to the part of the body through which the seed line will pass down. So what God is saying is, even though you in your unbelief have threatened to thwart my promise, I'm going to cleanse the seed line. That my faithful promise does not depend upon the purity of the people through which it's going to be passed down. I'm going to take it upon myself to cleanse you. And so it's given this cleansing ritual, which eventually in the New Testament comes into baptism, another cleansing ritual. But that's a topic for another day. So here's the point. God gives Abraham, in his weak faith, a tangible sign of cleansing and a recommitment to his promise. And then we get to this chapter 22. And chapter 22 is a hard chapter. God tests Abraham. And right when you read that, you're like, why does God test Abraham? And God doesn't give us an explanation for why he tests Abraham. But do you understand, Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. But it's helpful to us that God tells us that he's testing Abraham. Why? Because it was standard practice For the pagan deities and their worshipers uh, around this area at this time, it was standard practice for these gods to demand the firstborn son. So what's going on here is that Abraham, who's been walking with God, who's had these ample demonstrations that God is not like all these other gods. He doesn't demand his pound of flesh from his people. Instead, he makes promise after promise after promise in spite of their unbelief. He tells us that he is going to take it upon himself to bring about the future that he's promised. And then, chapter 22. And Abraham has to be thinking, oh, I knew it. He's got to be struggling with, I knew it was too good to be true. Because now it's time to pay the piper. He wants my firstborn son. And he doesn't argue with him. And you don't know 
Is it faith or is he sort of trying to hide the truth from his son? There's a couple of these statements that are ambiguous. He says to his servants, the boy and I will go over there and we will come back to you. And you wonder, is, is he just saying that so that the boy doesn't know what his planned? Or does he really believe it? And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament actually tells us that Abraham, as much as he was struggling, doesn't know at this point, like he's ever not known, what God is going to do. But he believes God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. And here's why he believes it. Because Abraham has had ample opportunity to experience that my body was as good as dead. I was 100 years old, as good as dead. My wife was 90, and this son was born to us. And now God is saying, not only sacrifice your son, and you can hear the the pathos in this, sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. See the way the climax your son. Like God knows what a grievous test this is. And it's not just sacrifice your son, as difficult as that would be. And I can't even imagine that. I mean, I can't read this story without thinking of my own little sweet boy, Isaac. You can imagine God saying, sacrifice your son. But not only that, this is the promised son. This is the son of the promise. And now God is saying the son of the promise needs to go up and smoke, literally. Burn him up so that nothing is left. And Abraham says, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I believe that God is true to his promise. And now he really has gotten to the point of, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. What's happened? He's walked with God for years. He's seen God's character over and over and over again. He's still struggling. It's not that he just says, oh, okay, wonderful. You can hear it. And even the way the narrative tells the story, as it gets closer and closer, it slows down. And, and just like with every step, it just sort of creeps along until you finally get, he's got the knife in his hand, and God says, Abraham, Abraham. But here's what you need to understand. Abraham is not the hero of this story. Chapter 22 is not about Abraham and his faith. Chapter 22 is about the Lord will provide. You see it first in verse 8. His son says to him, where's the lamb? And his father answers, the Lord will provide. But he doesn't know how. He can't imagine how the Lord is going to provide. But he believes the Lord will provide. And then down in chapter, sorry, in verse, sorry, I got the wrong thing in front of me. In verse 13, is it? Um, Yes, the Lord does provide. Right? He provides a ram, a lamb, and sacrifice. And the text wants to make you understand this instead of his son. Make no mistake, the lamb sacrificed instead of his son. And then verse 14, when this is written by Moses later, people still call this mountain, the Lord will provide. Three times in this passage, you're drawn to this fact, this indisputable, reliable fact that the Lord will provide. And then God reiterates his promises with a particular focus on the descendants. So here, the son of promise, 
Abraham is asked not just to sacrifice his son, but to sacrifice not only his future, but the future of Israel and the whole human race. And here's the question I have to ask you. When Israel reads this story for years to come after this, who do you think they identify with? And this is where I think Kierkegaard and a lot of Christians get this story wrong because they think that we're to read this story and identify with Abraham. But we're to identify with Isaac. Being the Lord is going to teach his people again and again and again that while I have every right to take your firstborn, I'm going to provide a lamb to be sacrificed instead. Years and years later, there's going to be another night when the avenging angel, as the final plague, when Israel is in bondage to Egypt, the the avenging angel is going to come and slay the firstborn, not just of Egypt, but of Israel, unless the blood from the Passover lamb is smeared on the doorposts. And once again, this message is going to be proclaimed in a picture to Israel. The Lord will provide. The lamb will take the place of the death of the firstborn. And finally, there will be a day come when the Lord Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, will be sacrificed in the place of those full of unbelief. Do you understand this? This is the key to seeing this in a Christ-centered way. The Lord will provide, and Abraham can have no idea what that means. So how does this help us to trust? I think, I confess to you, I often think I have a better plan than God. I often think that. But the cross, which is what this story is pointing to, proves that God had something in mind that was better than you or I could ever conceive of. Do you, do you understand that? Do you believe that? Do you struggle to believe that? We often think that we have a better plan, but the cross proves to us that God's plans are better, but they also are so beyond what we could imagine. And so beware of limiting God to what you can imagine. I know there's a lot of creative people in this room, but beware of limiting God to what you can imagine. Why is the cross such a glorious display of God's wisdom? I'll give you a couple quick reasons. The cross fully satisfies the justice and mercy of God. Neither one of them, neither one of them has to be left wanting right? G.K. Chesterton said at one time that the cross accomplishes something that no other religion could ever accomplish. Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites. You're longing for justice and you're longing for mercy. You can't have both of them working together, but in the cross, God fully satisfies both of them. And Chesterton says, God got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. Tim Keller says it this way, the cross does not represent a compromise between God's wrath 
and his love. It does not satisfy each one halfway. Rather, it satisfies each one fully and in the very same action. On the cross, the wrath of God and the love of God are both expressed completely. They both shine out and are utterly fulfilled. And so the cross comes and does battle against your unbelief, which often masquerades itself as, I know better than God. You may not think that that's unbelief. You may just think that it's discontent, but it's unbelief. And the cross comes in and says, you really think you know better than God? Gaze in wonder at this plan that God planned from before the foundation of the world to satisfy fully his wrath and his justice and his mercy and his love in ways that you could never imagine. This plan, this gospel of Jesus dying as the sacrificial lamb in our place has power to melt our hearts, not just to reconcile us to God through what we call justification, but to transform us from people who are suspicious of God into people who praise him for his wisdom. And what I, what I want to encourage and exhort you to do tonight, if you are a Christian, when was the last time you praised God for the wisdom of the cross? It has power to begin to work against your cynicism and your unbelief to say, Lord, the cross is beyond what I could imagine. There's depths of wisdom here that I need to just gaze upon and humble myself before you and your wisdom. And we must use the cross, the ultimate display of the wisdom and patience and love of God, to battle our cynical, suspicious unbelief. Because it's keeping us from what we were made for, which is to trust and to love God. Do you understand? You were made to be dependent upon God. And unbelief keeps you from being what you were made for. You were never made to be self-sufficient. You were never made just to sort of have God on your side to make sure you don't go to hell, but then you sort of live any way you want, trusting yourself and take care of all your needs. And it's no wonder, if you're trying to live that way, that you're miserable. You were made for dependence. And the cross comes in and does battle with everything in you that is suspicious about God and suspects that if I really depended on him, he would let me down. And the cross says, how can he, how can he abandon you if he went to the cross for you, if he would rather die than live without you? Doesn't that have something to say to your unbelief? Let's pray together.